it was hard, all the medical complexity, but the hardest part really was finding out all of the things that you have to go through for healthcare financing, for insurance, to get these things paid for. Hi, you're listening to The Rare Life. I'm your host, Madeline Cheney. Today we have episode 63 with Gina Pola Money talking about money. I love the irony. We talk about the financial strain that we often face and where we can look to for relief. Gina is certainly one of us. She lost two of her sons to a rare disease 30 years ago. The struggles she faced financially because of their medical needs inspired her to start working for the Utah Parent Center, which is a program, obviously here in Utah, dedicated to supporting parents in caring for disabled children. She eventually became an associate director in the program and the head director of the Utah Family Voices, which is a similar program. Just 18 months ago, she retired from these positions after 31 years. Although this is more of a technical episode full of resource ideas and tips for navigating the medical financial world, we also dive into Gina's why. Her story is so relatable and it's clear that she totally gets where we're coming from. I have to admit, after recording this conversation with her, I felt a bit of anger at the unfairness of it all, that on top of everything else we're dealing with physically and emotionally, so many of us have the weight of finances to deal with too. It's just so much. Just know that I'm hurting with you and for you. And at the same time, cheering you on in problem solving and advocating for these kids that deserve all the love and care in the world. Also, you will notice that Gina shares a plethora of resources to look into during the episode. Instead of madly scribbling the websites for them, just go to the show notes where they are all listed and you can browse through at your leisure. Also, also, I acknowledge that some of you are international listeners, and we do talk mostly about the United States, but I hope that a lot of the advice and tips are applicable to you, and um, maybe you can even look into an equivalent in your country or area if possible. All right, Gina is a lover of her grandbabies and spending time on the beach. Let's dig in. Hi, Gina. Welcome to the show. Hi. It's so great to be here with you. I am really grateful for you, for the time you're spending with us tonight to give us insight into what we can do to kind of navigate the financial side of having these kiddos with extra needs that, um, you know, a lot of times necessitate therapies and hospitalizations and specialists and it adds up really fast even just in the NICU stay alone I feel like that kind of like shoots parents into this realm right from the get-go and even neonatal care like right like you get all these ultrasounds if you find out before the child is born and so 
you know, unfortunately, the financial side is such a huge part of a lot of people's uh, experiences with these children. And I really hope that tonight we can alleviate some of the stress and kind of help parents know where to look and where to find resources that might be helpful. So I, you know, we talked previously about your experience with having children with disabilities and specifically rare diseases, which I think is really special so that you have that combined with your professional side. And as parents are listening, they can know that you get where we're coming from on this. And I think that's, that's really neat. That adds such a meaningful kind of twist on our conversation. So I would love to start out with talking about your two sons and really your why behind your professional experience. Okay. Well, so about 35 years ago, which ages me, but (laughs) I had my first uh, son, precious baby boy, Tyson, and he, he was born by emergency C-section, low birth weight and such, but didn't think much about it. He unfortunately got every cold that there was, and with each cold, he ended up losing a lot of his gross motor skills. About nine months of age, he was admitted to the hospital because he had coded in the doctor's office while he was trying, while they were trying to figure out why he kept getting so extremely sick. So that was... um, the day that I became a mom of a child with a special health care need, he was intubated because we had already been home. He was in the PICU versus the NICU. Mm-hmm. We were there for quite some time, ran various tests, couldn't figure out what was going on, but knew that it was something that was definitely progressive. We didn't have very many resources at that time, and our insurance was not the greatest, but we were sent home. He was ventilator dependent, could not initiate a breath on his own, but we were sent home with go home, love him, Uh, probably won't survive two years. And so that's kind of what we did that became our normal as we were still trying to figure out what was going on. But four years later, after not finding out anything, and they told us there was a possibility that we may not find out anything. He was just one of those rare undiagnosed um, kiddos. So four years later, I ended up pregnant with my second child because we decided to go on building our family and had our second son, Chase, and started learning how really to have two kids, one ventilator dependent, and then another so-called typically developing. And then our third child came about 18 months later. And he was also born very low birth weight. He was not sick for the first year of his life, so didn't think much about it. Um, We were very isolated. I had another child, uh, daughter, 12 months after that. So we had Tyson. And then four years later come, you know, three kids within 36 months. And all again, for us, it was normal kind of lived life looking out the window, watching what other people did, because we could go as far as what we could hear the uh, sounds of the ventilator. But unfortunately, right after my daughter was born, Three months later, my husband passed away. We don't know why it was sudden. From the time he got sick to the time he passed away was about 
two weeks and they ran a lot of tests and could not even figure out at that point whether it was a bacterial infection, a viral infection, or unfortunately something genetic that was never caught. So I was a widow at 26 with four kids, one being on total life support. And shortly after that, we finally, through a nerve biopsy, got a diagnosis for my oldest, Tyson, which was neuroaxonal dystrophy, very rare. At that point in time, they said probably the 26th case worldwide. So not a lot of information. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't too long after that where we seen that my third child was starting to show signs. He was not developing at the same rate, even as his uh, newborn sister, basically. And um, the doctors chose not to do a nerve biopsy on him. But as a mom, I knew that Mm. whatever this monster of a disease was, unfortunately, the third child had it. So to make a long story short, uh, we made efforts to make a quality of life, no matter what the quantity was for my two boys. And it was hard, all the medical complexity, trying to figure out what to do next, genetics, all of that. Mm -hmm. That was all hard, but the hardest part really was finding out all of the things that you have to go through for healthcare financing, for insurance, to get these things paid for. And being a widow, of course, I got survivor's benefits for myself and my kids and found out that we were not qualified for Medicaid at that point because survivor's benefits through Social Security put us above that income threshold. Which, oh my gosh. So I always thought I have to do something. I mean, regardless of how things are going. These kids deserve, you know, all of the the medical care and at one point palliative care and then hospice care. They deserved it. And so that's really what started my passion for advocacy. And I started working for the Utah Parent Center, which is in Utah. It's our parent training and information center. And every state has at least one of those mm, okay. where it all began. And mm. I learned advocacy and a lot of that was in the education world, but my passion was really the medical world and trying to help make changes so that families weren't going through what I was because we had no funding to, um, even have the ventilator at home after my husband passed away. So the only alternatives they were giving me were to maybe place him in a nursing home or a skilled nursing facility, because once he's out of my care, the state would pay for everything. And so again, passion came because it's like, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) No, Every child, no matter if they have a diagnosis or not, deserves to be at home loved unconditionally by their parents. So yes. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. So you totally, you totally get so many things that parents are going through. And I, my heart, like hearing your story, like, oh my goodness, I can only imagine all of the different facets of grief you were dealing with while also having to figure out how to like care for your children because of the finances. And I think that's such a frustrating part of all of this is that it's like, isn't it enough to like be worrying about our children, to be grieving, and then for you, your husband too, to not have to worry about how to get these things for them. 
I love that that spurred your passion to help other parents. I know that that can be a huge um, source of healing, I think, for a lot of people. Even for me, like the motivation really to create this podcast was kind of filling a need that I felt like I had in the earlier days. And there's something very healing about being like, okay, I'm going to do something about this because this needs to be fixed. And I think that's very cool that you that you pursued that. Yes. And so part of that, when I started working at the Utah Parent Center in, I want to say about 1993, there was a group of families that had come together throughout the states to, to talk about healthcare reform and that parents of children that had these complex medical conditions, genetic conditions, um, they didn't have a voice at the table when they were talking about all kinds of healthcare reform. And because we were experiencing every month on figuring out how to pay for everything, keep my children at home, um, I was contacted by a woman that said, we are trying to start a movement of families from across the states. And I had agreed to become at that point a volunteer state coordinator for what's now known as Family Voices. And it's a national grassroots organization to have families talk and speak up and advocate for healthcare and related services for all children, but especially those with special healthcare needs. And so that began the journey as far as we were able to, in all the states, start building an organization. And for example, in Utah, it was easier than starting up a whole new organization. We mm-hmm. chose to have it as a project under the Utah Parent Center since I was already there. Mm-hmm. And that began a journey that really helped because one of the co-founders of Family Voices is Julie Beckett. And many families know the term Katie Beckett waiver. Yeah. And um, Julie and Katie were really the pioneers of getting Medicaid waivers and home and community-based services throughout the nation. Mm. And so working alongside with them is now how I help families still now that I'm retired as of um, 18 months ago, helping families find those resources in such whether I'm referring them to whatever state they're in, but to their parent training and information center or to family voices, or giving my personal assistance in knowing about Medicaid waivers, because that is one of the best things that has happened because families don't have to figure out how to qualify based on their own income, because you have mm. to reach a low, low income threshold to qualify. But yet it's the comprehensive services that a lot of our kids need for the hospitalization mm. therapies, whatever that may be. There, unfortunately, are a lot of waiting lists throughout the nation, but at least mm. they're there. And mm. um, in every state, they develop their own and there's different criteria. For example, in Utah, for kids specifically, we have what's called a community services waiver that is through our Division of Services for People with Disabilities. And that's a waiver really if qualified with a developmental disability, 
if they get on, it's whatever age they get on. So really from birth to death, if they are qualified and they can get on it, of course, there's a huge waiting Mm. list. The other two that we have currently that are for children are the technology dependent waiver, which is what we got after Mm. passed away. This was developed and it really, truly saved my family, my life, my sanity. Because going through the grieving process, I will say even at this point in time that many years ago, it's not stages that you get through, it's Mm. states. So I keep circling back around, um, Mm. which I'll uh, talk about a little bit more in a second. But Mm. um, this technology dependent waiver made it so that we weren't worried about Tyson anymore having to go into a skilled nursing facility in order to get the care he needed. We could do it at home from Mm. that. I love that. So it grew. And now we have, for those that are medically complex, so we have an extra one, but they don't necessarily have to be technology dependent, but they're medically complex. So has opened up some wonderful resources, at least in Utah. And I know Mm. from all my colleagues around the States that, They have similar waivers, unfortunately, with waiting lists as well. So that's Mm. some of the things we're working on as far as policy now is to try to help families not feel like they are on a no-end waiting list. Right, right. Yeah, because I've I've heard that like in certain states, the waiting list is like 17 years long, which essentially makes it non-existent you know, for those families that need it, like, like for Tyson and your situation. I do feel like I've heard of several groups that are working to, you know, kind of improve that. And, you know, I think we're all so grateful for parents and people that are passionate about that, that work to make improvements in, in the system for everyone. Yeah, that has been, I think, one of the neatest things about this, even with all the heart breaking things that have gone on over the years in our family, connecting with other families to try to make a difference, not only for our families, but other families, because it really does take everybody. It's Mm -hmm. not about, you know, one organization or one person. It really is a collective movement to make it so that our kids get what they need. And Mm -hmm. for me, uh, many people have said after they passed away, you know, how did you keep going? And it's because those kids meant something. Of course, they were my kids. So they meant something Mm. to me. Their lives meant something. So that meant making sure that I did things to honor their memory. Yes, yes. I think that's such a powerful thing to do, like affect change that will influence and, and help other people in the situation you were in, right? Like, and that probably feels really um, like a really tender thing to be able to do in honor of Tyson and, and to be able to um, keep their memory alive in that way and helping other families like like your own. I think that's really awesome. So I'm wondering, as you're talking about these different waivers and you know different things that you can apply for, I remember when we were first, I think I was even still just pregnant with my son because we knew before he was born that he would have these medical complexities. And they said, oh, because of this and this, I would try this and this waiver or this, you know, specific form. So what I'm wondering is if you recommend 
um, listeners to find their equivalent of the Utah Parent Center, so maybe like the Connecticut Parent Center or whatever, maybe by Googling that. Mm-hmm. And um, and talking to someone like you who could be like, okay, tell me about your child. Here are some resources I think specifically you might qualify for based on and maybe even asking like income questions and things like that. Do you feel like that is a good avenue to go down also? Absolutely. That would be one of the key things is for no matter where you're at, at least in in the United States is, Mm -hmm. like I said, there is at least one parent training and information center in every state and there's at least one family voices or family to family information center in every state. The other thing I do want to mention is that, and I I did work for a number of years for our state Title V, which they have a program that is funded. Many states call it different things, but it's their program for children and youth with special health care needs. And Mm -hmm. they have additional resources, of course, information about resources or they may even have because every state is again set up differently but Mm. they may have some specific resources many of them are collaborating with the rare disease organizations Mm. the information uh, support groups or disability groups so the three main places I would say for families to really search for is children with special health care needs in their state, their parent training and information center, otherwise known as PTIs and family voices. And that will get them a place where they know what their state resources are, their state laws and on and on. Mm-hmm. And also help with, because of the insurance and because of the needs, letting them know how to apply for social security income, mm-hmm. which again is income-based, but many families do qualify and it is helpful for paying for some of those extra needs. If you're not on Medicaid, you know, diapers for five, six, seven, and on, we know how mm-hmm. expensive diapers are for newborns. So right. it's more expensive. So mm-hmm. those things, but there is also another resource that I think is wonderful for families if they want to just start digging around on their own. It's a website, but it has been built up over years with many states, but it started in Utah through our University of Utah Medical Center, and it's called the Medical Home Portal. Mm. And so if um, you search for that, you can go in, you can click your state, or just look around. There's lots of information just for families, but there's also a lot of information for physicians and such on some of those diagnoses and talks about where to look for some of those healthcare financing or funding resources. And I'll just say one example is if you have private insurance, but you need things that are above and beyond, um, you can apply to the United Healthcare Foundation and they will approve grants up to $5,000 to help offset some of those mm. needs a family has for their medically complex children. That's great. And I, I asked my listeners via social media for some questions they might have for you. And I thought one question was really great in particular. So I'll ask you this. I know we didn't talk about this previously, but she was asking about 
your recommendations for finding respite care. She lives in in Canada and she said that it is $75 per hour to have a nurse come in and take care of their son while she gets a break. For that type of thing, like say that you don't qualify for, you know, the medically complex waiver or whatever, you know, version of that. What would you recommend to her to be able to get a break? Because that's so important to not, you know, be constantly doing this intense caregiving. Absolutely. And it is one of the most needed resources for families, regardless, mm. because the self-care, we know that it's kind of a vicious cycle. If if we're not taking care of ourselves, then it's, you know, we're not doing justice to our kids because we need to make sure we're healthy enough to help them be as healthy as possible. So in cases where there is not resources or funding and that, you know, $75 an hour is just, it's undoable for a long, you know, period of time. Many families that I've known and like for us, we, even on the ventilator, we were lucky to have family right around. So we trained family, Mm -hmm. um, but others don't have that option. So I know that there are quite a few that through their Facebook groups and such, they've started a co-op with other families Mm -hmm. that um, are comfortable in, you know, giving another parent a break, knowing that at some point they'll get a break, but yet they're comfortable with, uh, you know, in many cases, it's specific um, diagnoses, or in my case, it was specific to somebody that knew how to take care of a tracheostomy and Mm. be able to change that trach or suction. So there's other families out there. And that is one of the strongest connections, I think, for parent to parent or family to family is to search that out because Mm. I think families are becoming very creative, knowing that if it's that important to them, that it's important to others until something gives where you know, there is some funding um, available mm. for respite care. And I think policymakers are starting to pay attention to that too, that mm. respite care is not glorified child care. It really is a medical necessity for the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. And like, I love that idea. I think that's so cool. I really hope that, you know, a lot of people listening right now will act on that. I think, you know, like you say, until there are policies that really, you know, take care of that like they probably should that us supporting each other especially because you know I've talked to other parents who like this one in particular she was saying that um she trained her mom on how to take care of her daughter but then her mom was like I can't do this for more than 24 hours I'm super exhausted sorry that's all you get and she was like but mom like I do this all the time I need more than 24 hours but she's just kind of stuck in that spot and so I think you know having other parents spot you like that you know that they totally understand how much you need that break and and they know this stuff I mean it's so strange I I talk about this kind of often but like it was so weird my son was tube fed and for my mom and mother-in-law they were both so so nervous to take care of him for the first time because they were so afraid they were going to mess up and you know I think we forget about how natural this becomes for us and how scary it is for people who have no medical training and honestly a little you know kind of dangerous yeah. especially with things like ventilators you know you want the person who's taking care of your child to know what they're doing yeah. so I really love that idea of us spotting each other until things are put into place for more permanent 
solutions. But and you know, I will say too, I have heard other parents also talking about, and specifically in Utah, and I, I, I bet these exist other places, but um, basically short-term care facilities where they'll take people with disabilities. I think of all ages for like. I don't know, a few days at a time and families will go on vacation together on a family vacation where they, they weren't able to do that otherwise. So, I mean, that's something to look into also. It's probably not cheap, but. Yeah, no, that you're, you're correct. And, and that there is that, um, at least in Utah, and I'm sure there's a, they're a little bit harder to find, but I know in Utah, we have a couple of nonprofits or foundations that have popped up from families mm. that they're doing it in memory of their child. But um, we have one that I want to say is Angel Hands. And they raise money specifically to get families together again, so that they can have mm. some fun activities with the whole family. But if there's needs, they're raising funds to help with those specific needs. So if respite is one of those pieces, that may be something they could apply to. So I, I do mm. know there are foundations across the country. Um, you know, mm. I know I know across our country, but um, you know, maybe in Canada as well, where families have really, in memory, set up some of these things to try to help families get a break. Because again. Mm. That is one of the untapped resources of, you know, many is knowing that respite is vital for yeah, families. Yeah. And especially when you put in their sleepless nights with a lot of these kids with these different medical needs. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's, I think it's incredible that parents are able to keep soldiering on, but at the same time, you know, that can only go on for so long. So with that, the foundations you're talking about, how would you go about searching these? Because that was another question I got was like, people keep saying, you know, there are these resources in different states, but I don't even know how to find them. So what would you recommend a parent if they sat down at their computer and they're ready to, to research this? What would they type into like the Google search? Um, Probably that's actually a tricky question, but you know, a Google search, I would say um, like disability foundations, uh, child foundations, but I'll go back to the resource I had talked about mm -hmm. before with the medical home portal mm -hmm. is that is constantly being updated mm -hmm. um, with state information as well as 211, which is the number for information referral for human services in many states, not all, but they help feed those resources in as well. And then it's easier to search within that because you can put respite in or you can put financial help or foundations and it will bring up things that are you know, close to you if you're doing it by your state or region as well as national because like with the United mm -hmm. Healthcare Foundation, that it's not a matter of where you live. It's a matter of, you know, if you qualify based on their criteria. Okay. Okay. That's great. Yeah. That's nice to have like a hub where you can go back to that and yep. browse through and say like, oh, that looks interesting. And um, another thing I, this is very specific to one of my son's things, but uh, with hearing aids, those are not covered by insurance, by many insurances, which is ridiculous. 
But I have heard that there are several grants and charities that provide hearing aids for children who need them. Do you know if there are, like if there's an equivalent to that for other medical devices? Yeah. That's so great. I guess it really depends on what it is and depending on the state you're in. So as you said, how do families find all of these resources and community type things without knowing, you know, what specific term by Google? Mm -hmm. And that's where I would kind of go back and say, definitely reach out to your parent training and information Mm -hmm. center and family voices, because that's, that's one of their key areas. And they also have grants and that's part of what their, you know, mission is, is to help families find those resources. And so things come and go so fast that they're usually on top of it and can get families to those resources in a more timely manner than sometimes, you know, Google doesn't even Mm -hmm. keep up with that. Yeah, I think that's great because it's such a, (laughs) I don't know, like having, like being handed this challenge, like, okay, here you go, figure this out, all of it out, including the finances, I think is just so like, who do you think I am? Like, I don't know how to figure this out. And so I think having someone that you can talk to that is trained just to do that, to help you navigate the financial world, I think that is such an awesome thing to have at our fingertips. And I really hope that, you know, everyone goes to that, to that resource too, to kind of browse through and and perhaps talk to someone who can help them really figure out something catered to them in their area. Um, And I'm going to ask you one last like wrap up question. It's kind of more on the emotional level, but do you have anything else that you wanted to add in there as far as more practical stuff? Just for, you know, my whole career, it was surrounding children and youth with disabilities, special health care needs. And unfortunately, I figured out that I had the pediatric system, at least where I felt pretty comfortable knowing where to look, who to ask. And then my two now adult children, Chase and Peyton, both have all of a sudden seizure disorders in their adult life now. And so Mm. it kind of takes a parent back. And when you talk about the emotional piece, realizing even with all the resources that that self-care and self-help is so vital because I'm finding myself with PTSD and trying to now help my kids navigate a diagnostic journey. And like for us, it, it is hard because we don't know what their biological father passed away from. So now they're those ages and, mm-hmm. you know, needing answers. So now it's like um, most of the resources are talking about transition too. So, you know, mm-hmm. reach out as well because navigating the adult health world is very different than the pediatric world, but it's just as important because your mm-hmm. kids no matter how old they get, you're going to be that fighting mama bear or, or dad, whoever that mm-hmm. is to help get their needs met and get answers, especially when it's yeah. rare. You know, my son's very young at this point, but I really feel for parents as, as I know them right now, going through that transition period of like having to relearn the system that is very different for adults. Yeah. You know, one of the key pieces, and it's a part that have always, I don't know if you've heard the term medical home, mm-hmm. but it really is basically your primary or pediatrician or healthcare provider helping to coordinate care because at least I know across the States, 
care coordinators have become, you know, an essential piece to help families as well navigate mm. and find those resources and find the healthcare financing that they may need because we're all falling into whether it's red tape or these, you know, deep holes because there's waiting lists. Mm-hmm. So again, making sure that families are connecting with other families and really partnering with their pediatricians or other healthcare providers, because with everybody involved, usually you can find something that will help that particular family, you know, in that time frame that they may need. And then you go from there. Yeah, 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 yeah that's so great. So I would just love to wrap up with your advice for parents, kind of going back to that emotional level of what would you say to to parents right now that are listening that are in a similar situation to how you were and and are right now, Um, hurting, you know, really hurting emotionally for these children and perhaps with these uh, kind of grim prognoses but while also trying to figure out what to do about finances and feeling very crushed by that weight and that stress, what kind of words of comfort or wisdom would you give to those parents? I would say as hard as it is, um, don't give up hope. And in my case, I did know that both my boys were terminal, but I mean, I had to really reach deep down that that hope meant that we were going to have one heck of a life and make it as quality as, you know, possible. And having the help with at least other families that knew where I was coming from, I didn't have to explain how I was feeling because you get to a point where it's like, is anybody listening? I feel like I'm just crying all the time and it's okay with other parents that know where you're coming from as well as some of your champion professional partners that can really help when you're just to a point where it's like, I just can't do this for right now. And they give you that permission to say, step back, be mom for a minute. Don't try to be the NICU nurse as well as the therapist as well. Just be mom for a minute and and realize that, you know, there are others out there that really truly have been through this and want to help because we can't take away each other's pain, but we can sure help that journey be not alone and not in isolation and takes away some of the frustration because you'll hear of something new and yes, it does not um, take away what you're going through, but it makes the next step a little bit easier because we have a compassion and passion for other families like no other. Yes, totally. Oh my gosh, I love that so much. And, you know, obviously that is a huge motivation of this podcast. I feel like that's where it kind of intersects is giving parents a chance to to listen to conversations of other families that understand because that really is like that's been the most helpful thing for me personally on my journey is finding other people who understand and get it because as as much as our family members love us and want to help. I mean, it's just, it's just one of those things. If they don't understand, they don't understand. And so I, I second you wholeheartedly. (laughs) So thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Gina. I appreciate you so much. I know that so many parents right now are getting the information they need to take a few steps forward and feel a little more empowered and a little less 
alone and overwhelmed than maybe 30 minutes ago. And I really appreciate you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And, and again, just having your podcast and knowing, I mean, it, it's just, I'm this many years out and I'm excited because I know that I can listen and I know that other families, um, I can understand what they're going through and it helps me because when I'm at my lowest part still, I know that other families get it and it's a connection that can't be replicated any other place. Totally. As mentioned in the episode, I sometimes give my followers on social media a chance to give input on episodes, like the listener question we heard. I'll put links for following me on Facebook and Instagram in the show notes if you're interested in that. Join me next week for a solo episode as I admit to some super perplexing and complex emotions I've experienced as Kimball's health has been improving. Don't miss it. See you then.